What do you think of Roller Girl? She's great. Yeah. Would you like to do it? Have sex. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. She's she's really foxy. No, I bet your ass she is. You're officially out of limes, Jack. Well, I'll pick up some for you tomorrow, son. Come, 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 come here, darling. I want you to go over there and sit on the couch with Eddie. During the golden age of porn, one young actor rises to superstardom thanks to his enormous talent. Listen as we discuss unattractive male porn stars, what killed Betamax, and the sub-basement of Rock Bottom. Then we find out if Boogie Nights stands the test of time. Sometimes James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to a boogie-tastic episode of The Test of Time. <laughs> I am James Brief, and joining me, as always, is Alan Noah. Welcome, Al. That's me. You can also call me Alan Diggler? No, no, that doesn't work at all. Dirk Noah. No, that also doesn't work. You need the alliteration. Have you ever done some of these, like, porn nicknames? Yeah, the rule for the porn name is your first pet and the street you grew up on. So for me, that would be Oreo Central, which sounds not very sexy. Well, I heard it was your middle name and the street you grew up on, which really works well if I have a little freedom with the middle name. Mitch Rockford. That's a good porn name. No, it has to be your full middle name, in which case it would be Mitchell Rockford, which is not a good porn name. But Rockford is is a good porn last name. Yes, 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 yes. What was your first pet? Hamster. (laughs) (laughs) Hamster's name was Hamster? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Hamster Rockford is terrible. Even though Rockford is a good porn name, the hamster would kill it. That's true. It implies that you are a very specific niche porn star that does things with hamsters that no one wants to see. You know what really is a real way of knowing your uh, porn name is what is your mother's maiden name and the first model of car that you got and the last four digits of your social security number? No, that is just uh, identifying information that is used on bank websites. Yes, but I'm also sure that's one of those things, unlike Facebook in 2005, people are all <laughs> listing like, which animal are you? Match the like first number of your social security number to this. And it's like, oh, I'm a red-haired owl. And it's like, yeah, thanks for your uh, mother's maiden name and all the passwords. Right, right, right. Probably not a great thing. But today we're talking about Boogie Nights. This was a movie that uh, is celebrating its 25th anniversary, and I was excited because I have only seen this movie once before I rewatched it for the podcast this week. Had you seen this movie before? 
Yes, I have seen this film. I actually own the DVD of this film. It's one of those movies. Ooh. I haven't seen it many times, and I don't remember buying this film. I feel like this is one of those, um, I call these the uh, Death of the Virgin Store DVDs. Okay. The Virgin Megastore in Union Square, the last year or two, every DVD in that place was like five bucks. And it's like, let me just buy it for five bucks. That's why I own like Hancock. I've never seen that film five bucks you might as well get it right 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 i know that some people are really big paul thomas anderson fans people like refer to him as pt or pta and uh i don't know that i'm a huge pta fan i remember liking boogie nights i remember liking magnolia and punch drunk love i didn't care for there will be blood I tried to watch Licorice Pizza. That's his latest one. I was on a plane and I think like the plane was delayed and I really wasn't in a good mood and I couldn't get into that movie. That might be because the movie's not interesting or it could have just been because I was cranky. Would you call yourself a big PTA head? You know, strangely, I actually have never seen any of his films except for this film. Really? It's really weird. They're just all films I've just kind of missed. Even though I really like Boogie Nights and I, you know, from what I see of these other films, I probably would like it very much. Um, Do you know who I would mistake him for? I can't even fathom a guess. Who? So I used to mix him up with Paul W.S. Anderson. I know we've seen at least one film of his that I said stood up. You said, hell no, didn't stand up. It's known by most people as the movie Mortal Kombat. And how do you know it as? Oh, right. Mortal Kombat! No, no, that it, it, it's far <laughs> less understandable than that. But anyway, Paul W.S. Anderson, he's also uh, famous for the Resident Evil series, and um, I believe he married the uh, film star, uh, Mila Jovovich. You're talking about Paul W.S. Anderson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson is in a relationship, I don't think they're married, uh, with Maya Rudolph who I very much love from Saturday Night Live. Um, But let's give people a recap of Boogie Nights if you haven't seen it in a while or you don't remember. It's about the rise and fall of an adult film actor in the late 1970s and early 80s. Mark Wahlberg plays Eddie Adams, a teenager who gains notoriety due to being very well endowed. He catches the attention of adult film producer Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds, who casts him in his next film and makes Eddie, now known as Dirk Diggler, a major porn star. With his newfound fame and a lot of cocaine, Dirk makes several bad decisions. He turns on Jack, quits his job, and tries to make it as a singer. Broke and addicted to cocaine, he becomes desperate, resorting to prostitution and armed robbery. After his fall from grace, will Dirk Diggler be able to redeem his good name? Now that's a good question, but the question I have to ask you, uh, based on that synopsis, now... Harvard University, their endowment is currently about $50 billion. Now, you say that uh, Eddie Adams, he he was famous for being well-endowed. Was he richer than Harvard University? No, I'm talking about the size of his penis, which uh, you do see at the end of the movie. It kind of made me think of a few weeks or months or however long ago when we talked about the full Monty and how, like, at the end of that movie, you don't see their penises. But at the end of this movie, you do see... The phallus in question, which has been referred to repeatedly as this huge, glorious thing in this guy's pants, and 
it's not real. It was a prosthetic. But I think at the time, wasn't it like a kind of a, a joke that like maybe it was a prosthetic or was it wink, wink? And, you know, since then, Mark Wahlberg has said, yes, it was a prosthetic. And like he keeps it in his house. And how could he ever throw that thing out? It's so cool. But like they were kind of cagey on maybe it was a prosthetic or maybe that's really him. I guess you'll never know. You don't remember that? No, I don't remember that being a question. As far as I knew, it was a prosthetic. I think it was just kind of like Mark Wahlberg didn't want to admit that it wasn't his real penis. But I mean, yeah, it's not real. Right. And uh, this film has an amazing cast when you look at it in 2022. Mm -hmm. But this is anyone from an unknown to a joke to a has-been in uh, 1997 when this film came out on October 10th made around $26 million. I've seen budgets around $15 million. This isn't really one of these conventional uh, two and a half times the budget means it's profitable because this is a real indie kind of film. I can't imagine there was like $20, $30 million worth of marketing put into this kind of film. So it never peaked at higher than number four. But uh, the film, I'm sure, did very well because also when I was looking through it, it said, do you mean the box office take of the 1997 release or the 2012 re-release? And, you know, this is not done for artistic reasons. It's done for money reasons. And Really? Yes, yes, for monetary reasons. And I'm sure the film made a lot of money for these people. It definitely put Paul Thomas Anderson on the map. He had done a movie before this, but this was sort of like his big splash into Hollywood. It was also like the serious acting debut of Mark Wahlberg. Uh, He was in a movie that maybe we could do on the podcast at some point, uh, Fear with Reese Witherspoon, where he was like the uh, hunky love interest who was a psycho at the end. But this was like the first movie where he was like a serious actor. Oh, absolutely. People today know Mark Wahlberg as a legitimate actor. He is no doubt an A-list and a leading actor. I mean, he led uh, Planet of the Apes and tons of films. He was in a Martin Scorsese film, uh, The Departed. He's a regarded actor. You know, you may like him, you may not. But at the time of this film uh, being made, this was Marky Mark is in a movie. This was not even Mark Wahlberg. This was like when The Rock was first in a film. No one knew it was, oh, Dwayne Johnson's in a film. No, it was The Rock. And you're, of course, familiar with one of the most famous SNL sketches of all time. And that is when... Uh, the late Norm MacDonald, along with Will Ferrell and Daryl Hammond. They used to do Celebrity Jeopardy uh, sketches. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, you know there was Al Trebek and Sean Connery. But uh, Norm MacDonald specifically plays Burt Reynolds, like a 1973 Burt Reynolds. That's how I knew Burt Reynolds. Like, I never really saw a film with him. I think I had seen, like... Cannonball Run. That that's the film where they drive across the country, right? I'm pretty sure that's right. As a kid, had you ever seen a Burt Reynolds film? As a kid, no. I have seen Deliverance. I can't think of another one that I've seen off the top of my head. And strangely, like Burt Reynolds was the actor of the '70s. You know, he's like a Tom Cruise of that decade. And it's just amazing that by the '80s, you know, the only thing I knew about Burt Reynolds 
when I was a kid was that he was in a really messy, messy divorce to a woman named Lonnie Anderson. I mean, do you remember this? The, yeah, yeah, it, it was, was like the, all the tabloids. Right, and I didn't know anything about uh, Burt Reynolds or Lonnie. I didn't know who Lonnie Anderson was. The, the point is, Burt Reynolds had been an A-list star, but at this point, he is a has-been. And not in a disrespect to the late Burt Reynolds, but to us, we did not care at all about Burt Reynolds. Well, the thing about Burt Reynolds in this movie was that it was supposed to be like kind of his comeback. He was going to be doing a role that was like going to make him be taken seriously again or maybe like more seriously than ever before. It was supposed to be like a John Travolta in Pulp Fiction kind of a thing where here's this guy who people knew him in the 70s. No one's really thought about him as a serious actor in a long time, but Paul Thomas Anderson cast him in this movie, and Burt Reynolds hated this movie. He hated the script. He didn't want to be involved in it. Apparently, he and Paul Thomas Anderson got into a fight on set, and he had horrible things to say about both Paul Thomas Anderson and the movie afterwards. He was nominated for an Oscar, and the story goes that he may have had a chance at winning it, except, you know, when you're nominated for an Oscar, you kind of have to, like, hobnob and like schmooze and kind of do the circuit and do the political thing if you want to win and he didn't do any of that because he didn't like the movie and he lost the the oscar to i forget who oh i know exactly who he lost the oscar to he famously lost it to robin williams right right right. but you're absolutely right that this is the role that makes burt reynolds a serious actor he is so good in this film and sometimes you can tell when someone looks like they hated doing this film you know i read that story that that uh, you were talking about i have to give it to reynolds i have no idea that he hates this film because there are some cringy lines for a quote-unquote respected actor to say and Burt Reynolds plays it so serious, so professionally. He's not even acting perverted at all, but he talks to uh, Mark Wahlberg's character. Uh, I don't know if he's Dirk at this time or Eddie, and he just goes, aim it at her tits. Uh, you know, that's an embarrassing line for him to say, I-, I would imagine. I mean, Burt Reynolds was a sex symbol, and like, you know, now he's kind of playing the sleazy, trashy, uh, you know, porn producer. I could see him being embarrassed, but it's such a shame that he didn't embrace it. He's so good in this film. Yeah, he is good in this movie. And the thing is, like, yeah, he's playing a porn producer and director, and yeah, I guess that is kind of quote-unquote sleazy, But the beauty of this movie is that it treats the porn industry not like in a way where it glorifies it, but also not in a way where it just makes it look like garbage. It feels realistic. And I read a thing today where some real porn stars from the 70s have said that this movie isn't really all that realistic for this reason, that reason. But some other actors have said, yeah, it is actually realistic. I don't know. And I almost kind of don't really care because it feels real. It feels grounded. It doesn't feel like this is Paul Thomas Anderson on a crusade to show how terrible the porn industry is. Like, no, he's just kind of showing you an industry where people have sex and the sex in the movies within Boogie Nights, that sex is supposed to be sexy, but the sex in Boogie Nights is not sexy, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, let's talk about what porn was in the 70s. And when we were kids, pornography was accessible, either a magazine that you can get pretty much in any, you know, stationery store, newsstand. And also the big thing was um, VHS. For some reason, they were always in these huge cardboard boxes. But um, the point was VHS tapes means people could watch pornography in their home. Today, of course, people use the internet. Wait, there's pornography on the internet? Well, it's just coming out now. It's Hold on a second. Hold on yes. a second. Let me check this. Holy shit, you're right. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. You can type naked people uh, into the Google and you will see some stuff. Whoa. You know, when we were kids, the thing that really kind of was strange to us was this story about Pee Wee Herman. He was notoriously caught in an adult theater. Maybe he went to the bathroom and masturbated, or maybe he was caught in the in the theater itself. But the point was, he went to a porn theater. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what pornography was before VHS. You had to go to a theater. And, like, you know, the way it was depicted in movies and, and you know, comics and everything was they would put on the trench coat and the fedora and the uh, sunglasses, and they'd be going to the theater two towns over. And that's how they would watch these things. And it was, you know, a very embarrassing thing. And this guy, Jack Horner, this guy's idea is I want to make more than just a film that you sit down and masturbate to and leave. I want you to watch it and see the end of the film. What happens to the characters? Right. And it is kind of true that in the 70s, porn did kind of go mainstream because of Deep Throat. And that was a movie that had a gimmick, but it also had a quote-unquote plot that people knew about. Not just the perverts in the trench coats who went to see that movie in the theater. People knew about it. Like, people would talk about it. It was in the cultural zeitgeist. You know, like, have you heard about this movie? Have you seen it? And it became sort of like kind of mainstream. And porn really had never been mainstream before that. And so Boogie Nights is kind of like tapping into that sort of era. No one says the words deep throat in Boogie Nights. I'm guessing that like this fictional universe takes place in a world where deep throat doesn't exist. And that's what the Burt Reynolds character wants to create, a movie that is kind of like that. But the thought of a porn theater and someone going in there and then masturbating and then being like, hmm, I'm just going to stick around and see what happens to these characters. Like that whole concept does not stand the test of time. You're right. And William H. Macy, what was he like? The cinematographer is something, the grip or lighting or something. Yeah. The gag is that his wife is not just cheating on him, but she openly cheats on him and like mocks him. One of these characters talking to little Bill, uh, William H. Macy, he's trying to talk to him about like lighting and camera angles and little Bill is distracted because, well, his wife is a little busy at the moment. My fucking wife has an ass in her cock in the driveway, Kurt. All right? I'm sorry if my thoughts are not on the photography of the film we're shooting tomorrow. That line is a line that I did remember from this movie because he's just so flustered. And his story is really tragic when he decides that he's going to kill his wife and the man that she's having sex with and then himself. 
it's like a long shot where he walks out of the party and he goes to his car and he gets the gun from the glove compartment. He then locks the car back up after he takes the gun out and then walks back into the party, which is just like a little detail. It just shows that he is out of his mind. He is not thinking. He is just acting like robotically. He goes to get the gun. It's tragic. It's awful. And then, you know, I was thinking about it. At the very end of the movie, when there's like that sort of like ending recap montage, there's a like a framed portrait of him like on the wall. And it's kind of like, oh, that's nice. They remembered him. That's like a sweet thing because he was part of their like porn family. But then I was also like, yeah, but he killed his wife. I mean, I understand that he was mad because she was cheating on him a lot, but he also murdered her and the man that she was sleeping with who ostensibly wasn't doing anything really wrong. You know, maybe he didn't know that she was married or whatever. And, you know, like a framed portrait of him, maybe that's not in the best taste. Small detail, but I was kind of thinking about that. No, it's a good point. You know, there's another character that I love, and that's John C. Riley. Uh, he plays uh, so good. Reed Rothschild. John C. Riley is a well-known actor today. He's even led films before. There's a film I've never seen of his that I've heard so many good things about that I want to watch called A Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. Oh, yes. That was a very funny movie, and the thing about it is that it is a parody of musician biopics and the upcoming movie that I'm really excited about is Weird, the Al Yankovic story, which is also supposed to be a really funny parody of musician biopics. Like when people have been saying that about Weird, it kind of makes me think of Dewey Cox. That's a funny movie. You should see it. We will. Um, but John C. Riley. And, and I say this not against him personally. I say this in a comparative Hollywood way. He's not Mark Wahlberg, good-looking guy. Right. And I never really saw many porn videos as a kid. Did you see many videos as a kid? Well, so when I worked at VH1, I worked on a series called When Blank Ruled the World. It was basically like a behind-the-music type show, except it was about like a pop culture phenomenon. And I worked on episodes about stand-up comics and supermodels and Star Wars, which was awesome, and Playboy. And there was an episode when Rated X ruled the world. And I didn't work on that show, but the guy who sat in the cube like right in front of me did. And so he was just like screening all of these old 70s porn movies. And, you know, every now and again, he'd be like, Hey, Alan, you got to check this out. This is crazy, which is, you know, kind of insane that that was a thing that happened at my job. So I'd seen a couple of them. Well, yeah. And, you know, of the things I remembered is that I remembered the men kind of looked Reed Rothschild looking like the men in these old boards were almost comically bad looking. I mean, there's this <laughs> there's this famous uh, porn actor, Ron Jeremy. He's like famously not good looking. And I just love Reed Rothschild because Dirk Diggler is a good looking guy. Mark Wahlberg is a good looking guy. And, you know, Reed Rothschild is not. And I just think it's it's just cast well. Yes, you got to have a good actor and you can't get better than John C. Riley, really. The thing about Ron Jeremy is, yes, he is not 
traditionally handsome, but like Dirk Diggler, he has a very large penis. So that was why he was a famous porn star. Uh, I did interview him at VH1 for a different series, not the uh, Blank Rule of the World. I know he has uh, been Me Too'd now. But when you first meet the character of Reed, played by John C. Riley, he and Mark Wahlberg are hilarious together because these are guys who probably don't spend all of their time in the gym, but they're having that, like, how much you lift bro conversation. And, like, they're, like, kind of daring each other. Well, you say your number first, and then I'll say my number. No, I want to hear your number first so I can make up a number bigger than your number. It's stupid, but it's funny, and it works. I I agree. It is a very well-cast role there. Uh, The character of Amber Waves, which is a great porn name, by the way, played by Julianne Moore, is brilliant. I mean, it is a tragic role. Julianne Moore is phenomenal. I don't think I've ever seen her be bad in any movie ever. I mean, I think she's been in a couple of bad movies, but she's a really good actress and she is phenomenal in this movie. Her role is heartbreaking and creepy the way that she's like a mom figure to a lot of these porn actors but she has sex with them and she gives them lots and lots and lots of drugs. I mean, it is a tragic role, but she is just like magnificent. Yeah, she's a mom character, but it turns out she's not a really good mom. Yeah. Because she really does love these two people. She loves Roller Girl. She loves uh, Eddie uh, Dirk. But she's the one who introduces him to cocaine. She even has to teach him, and Eddie's like, oh, it burns. And she's like, no, 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 you got to do more. You got to do a second one before you can leave. And what is her relationship to Jack? It is implied that she and Jack are a couple. They don't seem to be super romantic with each other. Jack is perfectly fine filming her have sex with other men, but that wouldn't be uncommon in the porn industry. You know, I'm not totally convinced that they sleep with each other, or at least they don't sleep with each other in the 80s. Like, maybe they did at one point, but I'll tell you, I would be very surprised if Jack ever slept with Roller Girl. I think he just houses her. I don't think he pays her, because I don't think she has any money. I'm really not convinced that he's that sexual a person. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he doesn't seem like the creepy porn producer where he's really only in it so that he can get laid. He's more paternal than Amber is maternal. Paternal in like, you know, a weird creepy way because he watches her have sex all the time. But I think that's a valid point. She is also a tragic character, Roller Girl, played by Heather Graham. Her arc is, I would say, a little underdeveloped in the movie. Like, you know, we kind of just see her in school. One of her classmates is making the, you know, obscene blowjob gesture at her and she leaves school. And then she is just there as a porn star and someone who does a lot of drugs. The scene where she is in the limo with Jack and they like go around to pick up someone for her to have sex with. And that's like the new porn gimmick that they're working on it's hard to watch because this is beneath her this is like extra sleazy this is extra skeevy and jack knows that it's wrong at one point he says here we are we're making film history on videotape because he's mad that he has to use videotape and he wanted to to stick with film 
But then that scene kind of like devolves into this really violent thing where the guy isn't doing a great job at having sex and Jack doesn't like the angles. And then he's like, oh, well, we went to high school together and you should be ashamed of yourself. And then they beat the living shit out of him. And Roller Girl famously says that she never takes off her roller skates ever. And she starts like stomping him on the face with the roller skates, which is you know, gotta be shattering a lot of bones in that guy's head. That's doing some damage, I would think, with those old, heavy 70s roller skates. And it also mirrors what's happening with Dirk, where he's getting the shit kicked out of him because he's turned to male prostitution again, which is what he was doing in the beginning of the movie, jerking off in front of whoever would give him 10 bucks, and now he's sunk so low, and then these guys beat him up. And... That sort of speaks to the movie in general and its relationship of sex and violence and how these two things really just can very easily go from one to the other. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this film has the famous rise for the fall. Dirk is getting his first porn award and and he makes his great speech like, oh, yeah, I'm so proud of the work we're doing and we're going to do better. We could all do better. This is also the time when he and Reed are doing their, like, quote unquote, acting. And Jack is so proud of this. And there is a great line when um, Kurt is the uh, assistant director that, that he's working with, the editor. Jack is looking at some of the, I guess he called them the dailies or, or you know, some early shots. And he goes, this is the film I want to be remembered by. And Kurt goes, it's a real film, Jack. As opposed to later when uh, Dirk has left him and, and he's doing VHS pieces of shit tape with Johnny Doe. It's like the exact same setup. And Jack peeks in the editing room and Kurt just goes... It is what it is, Jack. I love the juxtaposition there. He had told, not the colonel, but the second guy, like, over my dead body, will I ever use that videotape crap? And we don't see him finally acquiesce, but he does. Well, the implication is that he goes from film to video because the colonel is busted for child pornography or having sex with a minor or something. But it's also 1982 by this point. Right. That kind of bothered me a little bit. Like, I kind of wanted to see why he relented, why he finally, like, caved on leaving film and going to videotape. And the answer is that he had to because that's what the industry did. I did kind of feel like the movie was missing a little bit of that piece of how he goes from I will never go to videotape to only doing videotape. And there is a whole thing in real life about how the porn industry is at the forefront of technology. Like, the porn industry went to videotape before Hollywood went to videotape because they realized, hey, we're going to make a ton of money by shooting our movies on tape and distributing them on tape. And Hollywood was like, oh, this will be the death of the movie theater. Porn was way ahead of them. Remember VHS versus Betamax? Do you know why VHS beat Betamax? No, I just assumed VHS was cheaper to make for some reason. Well, I think that is true. Betamax is much higher quality. If you have a beta tape from 1982 and, you know, assuming you didn't like put it in a humid environment or, you know, light it on fire or something, it will look exactly as it did in 1982. Today, it is much higher quality than VHS. In your industry, in television, they were using beta. I remember like having someone come to our hospital in like the early 2000s and they were filming on beta. Yes, 
Beta was far superior to VHS. Beta lost the home video war because VHS was what porn picked. Porn picked VHS, and so everyone went with VHS. I don't really know exactly why porn picked VHS. Maybe you're right. Maybe it was just cheaper. Mr. Porn decided. I like how you like, porn came together probably in Las <laughs> Vegas or in California somewhere, and porn decided to go this way. Exactly. Um, but, you know, porn was first to DVD. Porn was the first on the internet. Anytime there's a new technology, porn's there. VR, the metaverse, whatever, they are the early adopters. It's just a thing that when there's a new technology, someone is like, ah, but how can we use this technology to show people having sex? And like, you know, the porn industry is kind of famous for doing that. But when you were talking earlier about like Dirk's rise and how he's doing these serious movies, when he first pitches those movies to Jack, he says that he doesn't want to do like the violence thing that he wants to be like more of like a James Bond type of hero in his porn movies. He wants to be a good guy who has a lot of sex, but not like in a abusive way. And then we see like later on after he's done like five or six or seven of these movies in that series where now he's holding the gun to the woman's head while she's giving him a blowjob. He's smacking her around and saying, you're going to fucking fuck me and then you're going to fucking tell me the secret lady. Like he has devolved into violence too. And I think that that's going back to what I was saying before about like this line between sex and violence where they should ostensibly be two separate things, but they kind of can blend together very easily, even when you have good intentions, or even if you don't have good intentions, but even when your intention is just to have sex and not have anything to do with violence, it can sort of merge. I felt like Paul Thomas Anderson was saying something about that. I definitely noticed that he smacked a woman right after saying all of that. Uh, there are two scenes I want to talk about. One, very quickly, during the fall of Dirk when he leaves the porn industry. I love that early 80s scene when he's trying to sing. Let me just play a clip of this song that he tries to sell to the industry. Baby, don't you know My heat will move your soul What do you call this genre? I don't know. It's garbage. But the funny thing is, is that Mark Wahlberg can sing. I mean, he was a rapper, but I mean, yes, he can sing. So to sing off key must be so fun. <laughs> I mean, it could be hard. I don't know. I mean, all I know how to do is sing off key. But like, it is funny watching him like really struggle to sing and fail spectacularly. And, you know, there is some truth to the thing that happens later where he's trying to get his tapes from the guy at the recording studio because he needs the tapes to get a recording contract, which we, the audience, know he's never fucking getting a recording contract. But, you know, they're holding the tapes hostage and he has to pay them to get the tapes. And, you know, like it, it is kind of like a real thing where these studios would do like those kinds of bullshit catch 22s where you have to pay them for the studio and then pay them again for the tapes and pay them for this and pay them for that. It makes it really hard for people to make it big in the recording industry. And, you know, the 
douchebag at the studio is like, oh yeah, that's your problem, not my problem. Except in this case, he's holding a cassette of a piece of crap. And then there's one scene. I mean, Alfred Molina is a very well-known actor. I know him from Spider-Man and this scene. Don't you mean Spider-Man 2? Correct, yeah. Spider-Man 2, where he played Doc Ock. You know, there are scenes that that elicit, like, cringe, and there are scenes that elicit fear and and laughing. This scene is just pure anxiety. When that Jesse's girl uh, comes on, it's a brilliant, like, auto-reverse. Remember auto-reverse? When the cassette would finish? Yeah. And then it would go to the other side. They're in this uh, crazy drug dealer's house. They have just sold him half a kilo of baking soda, and they just got five grand, and it's like, dude, get the fuck out of this guy's house. There is this little, uh, almost naked Asian boy. I think he's over 18, but not by much. Hmm. And he's just kind of walking around in his underwear, throwing firecrackers, loud firecrackers down. And Dirk, he is... Super coked up. He is sweating. Reed is sweating. This guy, Todd Packer, is totally coked up. There is so much tension. I want them to get out of this scene. They're, like, begging Todd to get out of the scene. Please, let's leave. And I love this scene. And I hate this scene. Like, it's just so uncomfortable. And it's so great. Well, it's brilliantly directed. And it's got an amazing soundtrack because it starts with Sister Christian. Alfred Molina's character is, like, really into, like, the buildup with the drums. And, you know, that's a great part of that song. And then it goes into Jesse's Girl. And then 99 Loof Balloons, like, when all of the shit goes to hell and there's the shootout during jesse's girl by the way there is a crazy long shot of just dirk and it is like a very slow pan into his face and he doesn't blink for i don't know how many seconds i didn't count but a very very long time where i was watching it i'm just like dude please blink like my eyes feel dry watching you not blink and paul thomas anderson does Many of those very long shots, uh, he does some really, really cool long tracking shots reminiscent of Scorsese throughout the movie. But yeah, this is a very, very tense scene. It perfectly embodies Dirk at rock bottom. This is a new rock bottom. When you thought he was at rock bottom before, this is like the sub-basement of rock bottom. And he loses everything. And, you know, finally, in the end, he crawls back to Jack. And, and the very end of the film is, uh, you know, it's a montage of basically what happens to every character. Not all good. Even some of the characters that seem like they end pretty well, you can kind of know that, yeah, they end like this in 1983. So you can fill in the blank of what happens. Like, for example, we start with uh, Luis Guzman's character that we started with. And he's opening a new nightclub. And there's this comic little uh, typo that the disco says, the Rodriguez with a Q instead of the G, the Rodriguez Brothers Nightclub. And it's like, oh, now this uh, disco looks stupid. But, you know, it's like, dude... It's 1983. It's a disco. This club is going out of business real soon. Right, right, right. We didn't talk at all about uh, Don Cheadle's character, who is fantastic in this movie, but it ends with him achieving his lifelong dream of opening a, a stereo store. And when he's filming the commercial, he says, we have all of the stereos you ever need. All you need to do is come inside us. 
And it's like, ha get it? Because he was a porn star. You know what he means. But, you know, he could have used a better turn of phrase. By the way, earlier in the movie when he's working at the stereo store and he's talking about the TK421 stereo. You got that, right? That's from Star Wars, right? Yes, 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 yes. Exactly. Uh, I don't think that's like a Paul Thomas Anderson, like, oh, I'm just going to like make a little, uh, you know, homage to Lucas there. I think that anyone who's like 24 years old is probably obsessed with Star Wars. I think there's possibility that he's actually saying that. Like he's seen Star Wars 18 times. They even ask uh, Eddie Adams one time, they mentioned, do you like Star Wars? He's seen, yeah, I've seen it like five times, which is pretty average for 1978 or so. Yes, that is true. I do think Paul Thomas Anderson was doing a wink-wink to Star Wars with the TK-421. And he also says, uh, when you're getting a stereo, hi-fi are two very important things that you need, which is funny because hi-fi is one thing, high fidelity. I also love that he is, uh, yeah, he's a black guy who will only play country music. And everyone keeps making fun of him. One of the other characters tells him, like, the cowboy thing is so out. And you realize, like, in the 60s and 70s, it was all Roy Rogers and uh, Clint Eastwood. And that stuff was huge. Like, kids dressed up as cowboys. He's, like, a little behind. Now, Jack, what do you think happens to Jack Horner? I think he dies very rich and very sad. I don't know that he makes a ton of money. I mean, if he's able to stay at the forefront of home video technology, maybe. But I mean, I don't know how rich all of these guys get, really. I think there's probably less money in videotape. I mean, it's cheaper, but I I have no idea. I have no idea. I think he just keeps doing what he does. Hmm. Well, what about Amber? What do you think happens to her? I mean, I don't think that's a real happy ending. I don't think she ever sees her kid. I think she tries to mentor porn stars, you know, younger ones as they come up. But she's addicted to cocaine. We never see her, like, get sober. You know, I I don't know that she has a happy ending. Right, right. And she's, like, kind of in her later 30s or so in this film. So she's still, you know, she's beautiful. She's Julianne Moore. But um, this is going to be someone who looks like Julianne Moore and then, like, five, ten years more of cocaine and, you know, not really doing that well for yourself. You know what happens to Dirk Diggler. You know who he's modeled after, this character. John Holmes. Yeah, he's modeled after someone who dies of uh, HIV AIDS. And that's quite possible what happens, especially the fact that... uh, uh, Dirk Diggler was involved in, in drug use, so maybe he used a needle at some point. Um, Roller Girl, you know, I've seen this film a few times, and I always thought that she kind of had a happy ending, where it's like, oh, good for her. She goes back and gets her GED like she had talked about. But I noticed something this time. She's staring out the window. I don't think school works out for her the second time either. It's always a good thing in movies. Whenever someone says, I'm going back to get my GED, I'm going back to college to graduate, they graduate with a 100% uh, graduation rate. And that's not really what happens. And I don't think she graduates. Do you remember what the song is as the final montage is playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys, my favorite. Right. And it's kind of God Only Knows what happens to these people. You know, we give you clues as to what happens. Like Reed Rothschild, he becomes like a magician and it looks like kind of like a two-bit magician. 
maybe, maybe if he's lucky, he's selling used cars in the 90s. This guy has zero education. I mean, he has no money from his porn days. He spent every penny on cocaine. And he, maybe he's still addicted to cocaine. You're not sure. Yeah, the drug use is really not ever resolved in any way in this movie, which you could argue is perfectly fair and realistic. You know, it, it would have been sort of hacky if at the end of the movie, like, oh, we're all in rehab, we are all clean, we're all sober now, because that's not really realistic. But it isn't really addressed as they kind of have these quote-unquote happy endings. Like, yeah, there's a serious drug problem with many of these characters that we don't really know how that goes. And yeah, you would kind of think... Probably not well in many of those cases. Yeah, so maybe except for Buck, um, nothing really goes well for any of these characters at the end. And I love that it clearly tells you that the colonel, he does not have a good time in jail, nor should he. I don't think she was 18 years old. This uh, young woman that he brings over to a pool party in the beginning probably dies of cocaine. Apparently one of the uh, deleted scenes so it shows that she does die of cocaine on the way to the hospital. It's later implied that like he doesn't like just under 18. He likes like little girls. And it's a somewhat satisfying ending to what happens to the colonel. He's like the shit beaten out of him in, in, uh, in jail. And someone's like, yeah, shut up, colonel. Like you can kind of tell. I don't think this guy was in the military. Right. And because you mentioned that, when the movie starts, Dirk Diggler, Eddie, is 17. And I think in the state of California, that makes him a minor. And, you know, Jack, in theory, could be arrested for putting him in porn. Maybe the age there is 17. I don't really know. Actually, no, I think uh, in the 70s, all porn was illegal in California. So I guess technically all of it would have uh, landed him in jail if he was getting busted. But people weren't really regularly. I don't know. But, James, let me ask you, do you think that Boogie Nights stands the test of time? Uh, Yeah, I think this is a brilliant film. It's a long film, but it's incredibly entertaining. There's a couple things that uh, I would like to know a little bit more about. There's a character, uh, Becky Barnett, played by Nicole Ari Parker, and I would have liked to know a little more about her. This is a film that if there is a four-hour version, I would have loved to have seen that version just because it's just such an interesting world that I think is very... uh, fascinating. There's very little nudity, and I would say in a weird way, it's tasteful nudity, and there's a lot less uh, nudity than, than you would think there would be. The soundtrack is really well done, and this is the film that turned Marky Mark into Mark Wahlberg. Uh, it's just a, a really well done film. It absolutely stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Does this film stand the test of time? I 100% agree with you, James. I also thought that for this two and a half hour movie, my biggest complaint, and I'm making air quotes when I say that, is I wanted more. I wanted more with a lot of these characters. Becky is a great example. Philip Seymour Hoffman is another one. Like his character, I think, is interesting. He is in love with Dirk and he kisses him, and Dirk says, No, man, what are you doing? And then he's like, Oh, I'm so stupid. And then he just kind of like continues hanging out with Dirk and Reed as this kind of like perpetual third wheel. He seems to still be in love with Dirk or maybe just 
unhealthily obsessed with him. He doesn't get a happy ending where he finds uh, another guy that he can be with and, you know, someone who respects him for who he is. His story doesn't really go anywhere. I think there's probably more interesting angles about the porn industry and what it was like. And there's just more stuff that I would have liked to have seen. And the whole story about Dirk, you know, his rise and his fall, it is kind of a cliche. You've seen that story in other movies where here's a nobody who becomes a superstar and the fame goes to his head and he starts with drugs and he yells at the people who mentored him and he goes out on his own and then he finds out that life isn't so easy when you're on your own. That's sort of like the the Dewey Cox thing. It's like every musician biopic that's fairly cookie cutter. And the movie works because it's brilliantly written and brilliantly acted and brilliantly directed and all of those things. I still kind of think that like the rise and fall of Dirk Diggler is maybe not the most compelling part of Boogie Nights. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm not saying that I hate it. I'm just saying I think there's more interesting stuff sort of like in the periphery that I would have liked to have seen more of. And I mean, I understand it's a Mark Wahlberg vehicle. It's his story. I get it. I just feel like I would have liked to have seen more of the other stuff because I thought that was really interesting too. But um, it's a really entertaining movie. It's tragic in a lot of ways. It's also pretty funny at a lot of times. I agree with you about the soundtrack. It is just banger after banger after banger, all the great 70s songs and then all the great 80s songs. Yes, I think this movie definitely stands the test of time. Uh, I look forward to doing more Paul Thomas Anderson movies on the podcast. I think I only saw Magnolia once, and I would definitely be curious to revisit that. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we have a special guest joining us for our Halloween spooktacular. That's right. It's your sister, Joanna Brief. She's coming back on the podcast to talk about Creepshow. What is Creepshow? I've never seen it. Basically, it's one of these anthology films written by Stephen King. Well, it sounds spooky, which is appropriate for our Halloween spooktacular. In the meantime, you know where we are. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us. Let us know your thoughts about the porn industry, the 70s, uh, very large penises, whatever you want to talk to us about. We are at Test of Time Pod, and we love hearing from you. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.